Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, the CEO and founder of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and consulting firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment. Today, we are speaking with Dexter Braff, the owner of the Braff Group, and he's an expert on valuation and mergers and acquisitions within the behavioral health space. But before we speak with him, let's hear from our sponsors, Track 9. As all regular listeners of the show are aware, I'm a huge advocate of clinical outcomes tracking. So I'm proud to have my favorite tracking software, Track9, as a sponsor of this show. Track9 Informatics is a measurement-based care and data analytics tool for substance use disorder and mental health treatment across the continuum of care. It assesses a combination of pathology and resilience factors scientifically proven to be most critical to client success. Track9 identifies which clinicians excel at treating various client symptoms so you can match the clinician best suited to the client's specific needs. Track9 also provides much-needed feedback-informed care loops to help clinicians themselves improve. What's really interesting is that Track9 learns your facility-specific predictors of treatment success or failure and provides treatment failure risk alerts, which can help lower AMAs by as much as 39%. If you listen to my podcast with owner Jared Dempsey, he talks about how different facilities achieve different results based on internal talent, systems, and the unique characteristics of their patient population. Track9 displays program performance versus national averages, which you can use to identify improvement opportunities and support payer negotiations. To learn more, visit www.track9.com. That's T R A C and the number 9. So valuation, valuation is a very complex topic. And as we'll really do a a deep dive in with Dexter, valuation is not just a matter of taking factors and, you know, doing some addition and subtraction and finding out what assets, my liabilities are and coming up with an answer. It's actually very dependent on the thesis that you have around your investment approach, time horizons, expected returns within those time horizons, and other factors that may actually inflate prices or undervalue assets at any given time. So just as a simple example, we had a provider that we were working with and they were in a position to potentially sell. They had an interested acquirer or an interested buyer. And from the buyer's perspective, they did not value the company at much. They basically said, okay, well, you're leasing your building, so you have no real estate and you have negative cash flow right now. So you're actually losing money. Um, even though you have patients in the facility and you're billing and gaining revenue, you're not making any profit. So for this reason, we don't think your company is worth much of anything. And the seller was looking at it very differently. The seller's thesis was, well, we invested, you know, a million dollars to get this thing running. We have it licensed, which takes time and costs money. We have staff in place. We have patients already coming in that we are getting reimbursed for. And all of these things have value. So if you were to come in and take over this business, you would save yourself eight months and a million dollars in startup costs. And so therefore, we think our company is worth a million and a half dollars. So very, very different perspective on the way that 
both the buyer and the seller were approaching valuation. And so Dexter and I really do a deep dive into um, how private equity or a potential acquirer might look at valuation, especially because valuations are so high right now. You can really get a significant multiple on a behavioral health business that really raises the question of, is it is it sustainable? Is, can you actually get an expected return? And what kind of approach do you need to, if you're paying 12X, for example, for uh, an organization or a business, how, how can you potentially get a return on paying that much over um, existing EBITDA and, and assets, right? And so lots of factors that go into that um, lots of pressure on the market to drive up valuations right now so really good for sellers um, maybe not so good for buyers but maybe it is right if i can buy it at a certain price and sell it at a higher price a lot of risk there a lot of questions about how that might work out but we really look at all of those different factors with Dexter, and he's been in the space such a long time. He has so much expertise in really understanding not just what traditional valuation is, but all the different factors that might drive a, a different thesis. And as we discussed, private equity often operates on a, a different thesis because of the timelines they'd operate under versus what maybe a longer term owner might look at, or even a bank if they're providing a, a debt based on um, valuation of a company. So. Uh, really, really interesting conversation. Uh, really happy to have Dexter uh, share his expertise with us and share his history in the space. So with that, let's jump in. Hey, Dexter, really appreciate taking the time to come on the show and talk to us about M&A here. Um, can you tell us just a bit about yourself and your firm? Sure. Thanks, Nick, for having me. Uh, again, my name is Dexter Braff. I'm president of the Braff Group. We are a healthcare mergers and acquisitions advisory group. Uh, we are sell-side advisors only, and we focus exclusively in healthcare services. And one of our specialty areas is in the behavioral health space, which, has, uh, as I suspect we'll be talking about, has become the most active space within all of healthcare services at MA. So talk to us a little bit about that, especially as it relates to COVID. You know, so I've seen you present at TCIV, at the Behavioral Health Invest Conference, a couple other places, and you do a great job of really laying out the land for the field and what's happening in terms of M&A movement and activity. So how, how do things look pre-COVID, during COVID, and where do you think things are going from that perspective? Yeah. Um. So the good news is we actually just got our third quarter numbers uh, completed. And when we look at the data, the data is, is pretty interesting. What we see is that from an overall mergers and acquisitions perspective, so if we're talking about pre and post COVID uh, activity, when we look at the overall behavioral health space, and in, uh, in our world, behavioral health consists of addictions and substance abuse treatment, mental health, autism, individuals with developmental disabilities, at-risk youth, and a little bit of acquired brain injury. What you can see is beginning around 2014, there was, we began to see a significant rise in deal flow, probably around about a 40 degree angle between 2014 and 2020 in terms of the growth of activity if we looked at it on a trend line. Immediately prior to 2021, there were approximately, let's call it 185 transactions uh, in the space. If we annualize out uh, this year, uh, uh, 2021, in other words, if we take the third quarter and annualize it, 
we're going from about 183 transactions up to 224, a very significant increase in 2021. Uh, and it's, it's actually quite possible that the numbers will be even greater than that because there are a lot of sellers that are rushing to try and complete transactions before the end of the year in order to lock in more favorable capital gains tax rates, which are subject to change possibly uh, uh, in uh, 2022. So what COVID has done is it's created this highly focused emphasis on all issues regarding mental health and behavioral health concerns that are uh, affecting the country. So as a result of COVID, the expectation and the reality has been that people are extraordinarily stressed out. The needs for behavioral health services, while they were growing and becoming even, uh, more uh, meaningful in terms of from an investment perspective for the last eight to nine to 10 years, COVID only accelerated the expectations for increased utilization and funding. And that in turn took buyers and really focused their attentions on the behavioral healthcare space. So right now we would consider the behavioral healthcare space to be the most active space within all of healthcare services M&A. We, we produced something, we do this once a year. We produce something that we call a, a mergers and acquisitions heat map. And what we do is we, we look at the intersection of the number of transactions completed over a five-year period of time. And we look at the slope of the trend line, the, the, the slope of the line, Y equals MX plus B. M refers to a slope. It refers to the change over time. And so the sharper the slope, that means the faster the amount of increases from period to period. And so what we do is we draw an intersection between total transactions and slope. And if you think about it, if total transactions are high and slope is high, that means you have a very, very attractive space. A lot of deals are happening in the space and it's growing. And when we map out all of the healthcare service sectors, you essentially have home health, home medical equipment, hospice and healthcare staffing, kind of clustered around a pretty favorable measure of activity. But then you've got behavioral health, which is an extraordinary outlier. It is far removed from all those other spaces in terms of not only the number of deals completed over that five-year period of time, but the rate of growth in terms of transactions over that period of time. So behavioral health has, has really separated itself out from all of the other healthcare service spaces uh, that we cover. And then do you have a little bit more granular data in terms of what that looks like? Are we talking about residential, full continuums of care, MAT, um, any information in terms of yes. that? Let me, uh, let me pull up my, uh, my graphs on that. Where is the greatest amount of activity happening? The first of all, in general, uh, residential activity has been extremely hot, if you will. Uh, in fact, 
when we look at the heat map for addictions treatment, now let's just, now we're looking specifically within the addiction space. The areas that are getting the most amount of attention in terms of number of transactions and the amount of growth in those transactions are residential. We break up residential into what we can discern to be high-end versus mid-range to value. It's hard to, to sort that out, but we're essentially trying to break up uh, programs that have uh, Medicaid being a funding into it where the reimbursement rates are, uh, or the, the charges per day are not as high as some of the high-end programs that you see scattered around uh, Florida, Arizona, California, stuff like that. There's still a, a substantial amount of activity in resident, in high-end residential, but it's way down in the last year or two. The biggest change has been in the mid-range to value on the residential side. We've seen substantial amount of growth, particularly in 2021. So if we look at 2020 and we look at the mid-range to value residential program, we were at about 12, 13 programs uh, uh, traded in 2020. Not a lot of transactions. There had been as much as uh, uh, approaching 20 in 2018, but it kind of fell off between 2018 and 2020. If we annualize the third quarter of 2021, we jump all the way up to uh, 32 transactions on the mid-range to value side of the equation. On the, on the other side of the equation, in the high-end residential, in 2016, we hit a peak of about 18 transactions. And on an annualized basis for 2021, that's down to less than six. So whereas there's still been a lot of deals completed in that space over a five-year period of time, it's definitely sloping downwards. In the mid-range to value side of the equation, the numbers are trending upwards and trending upwards significantly in 2021. And we suspect that that's not an anomaly, but We'll only really know that for sure when um, you know when the uh, uh, when we see how 2022 uh, plays out. What about um, like outpatient or MAT? Yeah, so let's talk about MAT and the others. Okay, so if we take a look at medication-assisted treatment, you essentially that space peaked in 2018 with about 25 transactions. Um, and it's kind of hung around there in the plus or minus 20 deals for the last three years or so. It dipped a little bit in 2019. Uh, we're projected to be at about 20 transactions in 2021 annualized. I would, I think that number would be higher if there were more programs to buy. And there, it's it's a limited space. Uh, and um, also buyers. Uh, are turning a large a lot to startups in that space. So the um, there's not as much follow-on activity as we might typically see with private equity because they're able to do startups. So 
there's a definitely um, an attractive amount of deal flow in medication-assisted treatment. Probably not as high as I would have thought, but I think it's mostly related to the fact that there just aren't a ton of providers that are out there able to acquire. And then the last group that we look at is non-residential. One of the things that's really interesting to us is that we projected that non-residential services were, were going to rocket long, uh, you know, we projected that about in the first TCIV conference, uh, I guess it was six or seven years ago. The numbers are going upwards. There's no question. There's rising between 2015 and annualized 2021. But the number of deals just aren't that many. Um, if we look at 2015, we literally could only find seven transactions. On an annualized basis for 2021, we're looking at uh, 15 deals. So if you compare that to the number of transactions that we were seeing else in other spaces, it's a small fraction of the number of deals that we've seen elsewhere. It is growing, but it's growing at a much slower rate than we would have had we would otherwise have anticipated as as uh, we, we were anticipating a movement from higher cost residential programs to lower cost non-residential programs. MAT has picked up a lot of the non-residential non deal flow, but the outpatient PHP IOP has not uh, performed in a manner consistent with what we would have anticipated. It's really interesting because I would agree you know, I really see outpatient being the lower cost level of care and also accessible to more people. The reality is that the vast majority of people struggling with addiction are not severe enough to warrant residential care often so they can go into a lower level of care. Right. Um, so why do you think that is? Why do you think you're seeing the higher deal flow among the medium cost? I don't know. I suspect some of it has to do with simply that the reimbursement isn't as high and the profit margins isn't as high. Also, we are, I think what we're going to see is we might see a real explosion there. And I know we've been thinking about this for a while, but consider the fact that, that so many things now are moving towards this uh, telepsychology, psychiatry, telehealth. That is also moving into the addiction space. We just saw a very significant investment in a Connecticut-based home addictions program, uh, which is uh, growing rapidly. And, I, and we're seeing more of those opportunities being developed. And I think it's in concert with the idea that, uh, that, that we've kind of gotten more com comfortable with non-institutionalized healthcare delivery services. Uh, and that's, we're also seeing that in the primary care setting, a substantially, uh, substantial growth in home-based services. So will we see this expand and further develop within the behavioral health in general and addictions specifically? I think there's a good reason to think that that could happen. Um, uh, it, it, it still remains to be seen. But as I said, I think probably the biggest obstacle is just that the profitability isn't as, as high. And, and with private equity, um, playing such a substantial role in the consolidation of behavioral health and addictions, they're looking at a much shorter time horizon. And in their shorter time horizon, they're focused more on profit dollars over the next 
you know, three, four, five, six years than they are over the long-term evolution of how care is going to be provided within the addiction space, you know, 10 years from now. Yeah, that's one of my main arguments when people are looking at funding, you know, whether they want to do traditional bank debt or a sale lease back or, you know, a capital raise with private equity. Private equity's timelines are a little bit shorter than I think often work in behavioral health to that point, right? IOP and PHP outpatient in general, I think, is the future. I mean, even if we look at it from a marketing perspective, you know, it's about four times more people going into outpatient levels of care than into residential. So the volume is there, right? And the need is there. Yeah, but we don't and, see and it. you know what? You can see that when we look at mental health. Yes. Because mental health deal flow is growing dramatically. And that's, um, and when we're talking, the biggest growth uh, factor there is not in institutional, you know, hospital, uh, psychiatric hospitals, but it's all in outpatient clinics. So you see that private equity has jumped into that space head first. Um, there's been some substantial activity in that area. So the idea of outpatient services for a behavioral health condition has recently garnered a substantial amount of attention. So the question is, is will that transfer to addictions, which, you know, I'm not a clinician, but a lot of the services that are being provided in addictions counseling has relationships to the types of services that you might see under mental health. And so there's all the reason to think that that wave is going to be, uh, is going to subsume or go, going to be uh, uh, mirrored in the addiction space just hasn't happened, just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm seeing the same thing. And, you know, potentially the same thesis is there with the MAT clinics, right? A de novo build for an IOP program is pretty cheap. You know, why even bother acquiring someone, especially because there's so many mom and pop operators and they don't necessarily provide much quality. You can build your own, especially if you already got a platform. Well, Nick, and that's one of the interesting things about the behavioral health space. I know that uh, one of the questions that you had, and, and if I may just take a little bit of a, of a, of a leap sure. there because it's appropriate, is how, how can these companies, uh, buyers, justify these extraordinarily high yeah. valuations? <laughs> and we'll talk about um, how they got there um, momentarily. But, you know, if you're buying a company uh, at 14, 15, 16 times EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, you've essentially eliminated the possibility to capture an increased valuation or arbitrage um, by growing the business. The, the typical uh, consolidation play is you buy a bunch of small businesses at, let's just say, five to seven times earnings, EBITDA. But when you buy 10 of them and your aggregate EBITDA goes from 2 million to 20 million, when you have 20 million of EBITDA, you can capture a growth multiple when you go and sell it to the next person. So you can go from five to seven times EBITDA to double digit EBITDA multiples. But if you're starting at 15, 16, 17, which is a typical exit multiple when you're talking about uh, you know, a company that's gotten to size, how do you make those numbers work? Yeah. Uh, and the way to make it work is to take your overall investment 
and kind of arbitrage it down in terms of the capital invested per earnings dollar. And the way to do that is to sprinkle in a lot of startups versus other acquisitions. Because if you keep on buying at 15, you're going to have a hard time getting out at a profit. But if you buy your base business or a couple of larger base businesses in order to build your platform and then do startups, the return on investment in terms of the amount of capital being invested and the amount of profits that can be generated after a fashion, the internal rate of return on the startup is substantially higher. Now, what makes the behavioral health space unique is that because it is largely consumer-oriented, it isn't really a referral-based business. It's a business where you can do startups relatively comparatively easier. It's difficult to do startups in referral-based businesses because if you don't have the referral base, it's hard to wrestle the business from someone else. So in the area of like home healthcare, where business is almost entirely referral-based, if you want to do a startup, you have to steal referrals from somebody else. And those referrals are pretty well highly entrenched. But if you're in a business where uh, it's advertising and telemarketing and um, outreach to uh, individuals within the community, where it's more a consumer-focused model in terms of bringing in customers and not referral-based, you can grab that business by doing a startup, by having a better location, by offering different services, and not have to try and steal referral relationships. And I put quotes around steal, referral relationships. And so uh, buyers in the early, if it's private equity, in the early part of their investment cycle, they can turn to startups and have enough time for those startups to mature and throw off enough EBITDA where at the end of the day, the amount of capital that they invested uh, versus the amount of earnings starts to come down from that original 15X that they might've paid for the first transaction. That logic works. And I see that happening in the MAT space in particular, but I can't say I've seen it happen in addiction treatment. I don't see a lot of private equity doing de novo builds. And so I'm curious about this whole valuation thing. I know we're gonna get into it. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't see it that much in the, the, the residential programs because now you also have to buy real estate and there's a lot of NIMBY issues out there. It's definitely an issue in MAT. It's definitely an issue, in, but it's a really big issue in autism services. Um, there's a ton of startups being done in the autism space. And we will certainly be seeing it in the mental health space. In terms of if people are buying in at the addiction space, you know, at those high multiples, it's going to be more difficult to arbitrage that value down. Uh, because I think you're right. We don't see as many startups in, in the residential programs as we see in some of the other areas within behavior. So I'm curious on your thoughts on this, and this is something we were talking about the other day, is the sky-high valuations and not being able to make that capital back. And so what are some of the pressures around that? You know, I mean, people got a lot of dry powder. They got a lot of cash waiting in the wings that they've got to use in a certain amount of timeline. They're, you know looking at companies from a valuation standpoint, I think maybe erroneously and thinking that because the space is hot, they can buy it 11 and sell it 15. You know, I mean, any thoughts around what those pressures or factors are that also tend to drive the high valuations? Well, I mean, yeah, 
you know, first of all, I, I think that we've been talking about this now for a year or so. If somebody is on the fence right now about selling a behavioral health company or an addictions company or an autism company, um, and they otherwise haven't, and they're trying to maximize purchase price, you, you got to get out now because the valuations just are, they're beyond sustainable because uh, it is difficult for, for, um, for, for investors to make that money back when they're paying these kind of valuations. Frankly, in many cases, we look at it and we kind of shake our heads and go, I don't know how they're going to get out of it and, and do well. Um, they're going to have to use their other strategies in order to grow EBITDA. So in the, the easiest way to build value is, as I was saying before, is to buy at a non-size valuation and then sell at a size valuation to capture the, the size premium. That's pretty much out the window as we suggested. So how else does PE look to try and increase profits? Well, they do look at um, deploying technology. Uh, a lot of PE companies are really good about looking at internal infrastructures and evaluating uh, technology investments that can be made in order to get a little bit more leverage and profitability out of the operating business that's currently there. So if I can increase the profit margins by deploying uh, technology solutions, then I can increase my valuation because I'm increasing my EBITDA dollar. There is focus on marketing and new ways at reaching out into the market to grab share from other competitors. And so there's interesting innovations in how people are looking at trying to uh, increase their census and grow their, the, uh, the number of folks that are out there. There are expansion of programs um, adjacent to the core. So if I'm doing, let's say, high-end residential, I can expand into lower-end residential as long as I don't uh, detract from any kind of brand name recognition I might have created on one side of the ledger. It's sort of like having you know, uh, uh, a Lexus and a Toyota owned by the same company. Um, but you have a high-end brand name and you have a lesser high-end brand name. So expanding into different areas with outside of the core gives an opportunity to grow the top line and grow the bottom line, uh, you know, organically without having to turn to doing an acquisition. Uh, so these are, you know, just some of the basic strategies that PE can use to increase the value of their holdings without having to rely on arbitraging the exit multiple. But I will say the exit multiples themselves have also gone high. You know, the, the growth exits, you know, previously you'd tap out at 12, 13, and 14, and now you're tapping out at 19, 20, and 21. I, I just don't think that's sustainable, but it's there right <laughs> yeah. now. Um, so, you know, is it going to go away next year? Probably not. But but I'll, but I'll tell you, all you need to have happen to sabotage the model, if you will, is for there to be another contraction in the debt markets. Uh, right now, the debt markets are providing as much debt as a function of EBITDA than we have ever seen. And it's looking very much like it looked like prior to the 2008-2009 uh, 
global financial crisis, when the markets collapsed. Uh, the, the, the debt levels are about that same level now, according to PitchBook, which is a, kind of a clearinghouse for all things private equity related. Roughly seven to, uh, to seven and a half times EBITDA uh, is the average amount of purchase price being funded by debt, which is a big number. Uh, and in fact, it's actually even bigger than what it sounds like when you compare it to the same seven to seven and a half that we saw in 2008, 2009, because the definition of EBITDA in circa 2020, 2021 is different, i.e. in the most current incarnation, uh, lenders are being far more lenient in looking at go forward pro forma if everything is perfect EBITDA versus a trailing 12 EBITDA, which would have been more consistent with what you might have seen you know, 13, 14 years ago. So if those debt markets collapse and those debt markets are the things that are propping up valuations for private equity, then those aggregate multiples that are being funded by both debt and equity are going to drop like a rock. We did see that happen after 2008, 2009. I'm not suggesting that we're, that's going to happen, but it certainly could. And the lending is probably more aggressive than it should be. So, you know, if somebody wanted to uh, short the debt markets, um, you know, I certainly wouldn't think that history would prove them wrong. Yeah, there's a lot of financial engineering going on sometimes, right? I think there's a lot of financial engineering. It's just a way to justify the the loans. It's interesting. I always get a kick out of the the, the lenders. You know, are all complaining about, you know, how much money they're lending and 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 the rates. And I'm like, well, you guys are the ones who are lending the money. <laughs> um, right. But they're under the pressure because they're not making any money if they don't deploy it. So they got to deploy it. And so, um, you know. Uh, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, it's it's not it's not easy being a lender today. Not easy being a private equity guy today, in terms of you know pricing. Uh, if you're a seller, life is good, uh, and that's pretty much across the board in healthcare. Um, but on the buy side of the equation, it's a lot more. Uh, there there should be there's a lot more trepidation. Although people are all in right now, and, and as it be said, the, there's no question that. Buyers are aggressively targeting the space and uh, and are hoping to some degree that the other variable that we didn't discuss is that the market is just going to expand. And there are all expectations that the behavioral health market's going to expand as there's more funding being made available, especially in the wake of COVID. Uh, and, um, and utilization is growing as people are getting more comfortable with saying that they need help. Um, so that's another factor that plays into the thought process of why I might be willing to pay a lot now because I think the market's going to be substantially bigger five years from now. Yeah, you know, I'm I do a lot of investing um, on my own, and I think you see whether you're looking at retail investors in the stock market or PE, it is the same trends, right? You have your what I would consider a value investor. And then you have your speculators and a lot of people are saying, hey, this business has got a million dollars in assets and a million dollars a year in EBITDA, you know, so we're, we're going to value it at 
15 million. It's like, well, that's not, how are you, how are you even thinking that's possible? But it's speculative. They're hoping that if they buy it at 15, they can sell it for 20. And that's not based on any fundamentals of the business whatsoever. The fundamentals of the business have a much, much lower valuation, but they're not trying to buy fundamentals. They're trying to buy, you know, growth and sell it to the next sucker, <laughs> you know, before the market drops. Yeah, Nick, it's, it's one of the things that, that, you know, when I first got into this business and I've been in it for a long time, Breath has been around for 23 years uh, and I was doing it for about 10 years before that. I hesitate to say how old I am now. But when I first got into this, you know, I, I kind of looked at that buyers would, you know, kind of do a, a rigorous valuation you know, using risk return fundamentals, basically looking at um, the risk of investment and investment and comparing that to other things that a buyer can invest in and trying to get the best return on that investment based on, uh, again, the risk profile and growth. It's not really what's happening here for buyers that are with them, that are buying with the idea of selling later on. They're betting on where the market is heading. Um, and their math is, is, is very, very different. So when these companies are, are selling for, you know, 20 times, you know, earnings. If you add a, a valuation person, uh, somebody who's trained in valuation, I'm trained in valuation, and they were unaware of what was happening in the marketplace. So they were, they've been buried under a rock and they came out there and then they did their own research as to what the risk return fundamentals of an industry that is uh, that has a substantial amount of, of government-based reimbursement, insurance companies that are for-profit trying to find ways to reduce their spend. And you look at all these things and you would describe evaluation, you would never get to those valuations because the risk return fundamentals wouldn't support them. But there are people making tons of money on paying those amount of that amount of money and then selling it for higher because the market is just moving in that direction based on speculation. Um, and so uh, underlying risk return fundamental valuation versus the amount of money a buyer is willing to pay and can actually do well later on, they, they almost, have, almost have nothing to do with one another. I mean, they're, they're obviously related, but there's a big difference between um, a, a rigorous risk return of market valuation and what we see outside in the marketplace. There's no question. About As you said, the math is it's different. You know, they're looking at it different, different timelines. I think also I see, and it's just so much private equity these days, right? I mean, there didn't used to be, but there's so much. So there's so much competition, which drives valuations up. And I also think there's a lack of sophistication um, among private equity because there is so much these days. I mean, we get a lot of calls. You know, I'm sure you guys do too. It'll be a call. You know, I'll get a call from this guy. And he'll be like, well, you know, we're in food processing and warehousing, and we're think of. Uh, we're thinking of extending to behavioral health. And you're like, what? Like, what do you know about this space? You know, they're like, well, we need some color on it. You know, can you give us the fundamentals? You know, but they don't really understand the the fundamentals and the mechanics. They don't understand how to drive valuation. They'll, they'll go in and they'll try and tweak the marketing cost. Um, they'll maybe try and renegotiate insurance contracts, but they don't know how the business is driven by quality care. And as we've discussed, the timelines required to get those relationships and those referrals and everything in place. And so I just think they come in with um, a lack of knowledge about the space sometimes that makes them more prone to overvalue things. I, I, I think you're right. But I, I will add, though, that I think what happens in this scenario that you're talking about, 
where somebody's coming from, you know, outside of healthcare, if you will, and they're going, hey, well, what's this behavioral healthcare? And I think what winds up happening is those investors actually don't pull the tr trigger on their investment. I think what you what we find is that private equity buyers of, let's say, behavioral healthcare, also have holdings in home care. Um, they have holdings in pharmacy. They have holdings across the healthcare space, and that's because they are more familiar with what makes healthcare in general unique, and they get good at it, and they get more comfortable with it. Now, they may not always read the market right, but they're at least coming in with their with eyes a little bit wider open, if you will, than somebody who's kind of just jumping into it and said, you know, I, I heard that behavioral health care is good. I will say that when when private equity is making their, you know, their their judgments, um, it's it's so much driven on what they're modeling as a potential exit. They, they are spreadsheet driven. There's, there's no question about that. There's no shortage of lines in a spreadsheet that they will have in evaluating their transactions. In fact, one of my bones I have about PE is sometimes they look at their models and take them too literally. It's like, it is a model with a lot of variables. Let's not, let's not get carried away with that. But models are models and who knows how they're actually going to, how they're actually going to turn out. But I think what happens is that if there are a lot of people in the space and other people are, other investors are making similar kinds of bets, there is safety in numbers, uh, maybe not real safety, but perceived safety. And so I think you'll see buyers who are willing to do things that they might otherwise not do if they, there weren't other people around them doing the same thing. That's not a good investment thesis. Uh, I think that they're 100% correct in their read of the opportunities in behavioral health and addictions and the growth opportunities and all of that. It's just a question of, is there enough out there in order to, to, um, to, make, the, uh, to make the returns work well? It will be interesting um, we, we, I just, uh, one of the questions you had, you had um, talked to me about was what kind of returns are we seeing that these private equity groups are making? And I, I have a, again, from, um, from PitchBook, which just has just tremendous information. I'm looking at median, kind of the midpoint, if you will, of returns on investment, internal rates of returns for private equity since 1997. And what you can see is in the last four or five years, returns have gone up really high. They had been hanging around the plus or minus 12% range, you know, for a fairly long period of time between let's say 2004 and you know, 2012, 2013. In the most recent couple of years, 16, 17, 18, 19, and, uh, and 19, the numbers have jumped up dramatically into 15, 20, 20% returns. Well, why is that? Well, because valuations have been rising steadily. 
Um, this valuation increase that we're seeing now is didn't just happen in in 2021. It's been happening for the last four or five years. So these companies have been able to exit their transactions at extremely high multiples relative to what they bought in at. What'll be interesting is to see what are the internal rates of return going to be in the next five or six years. And I think it would be reasonable to expect that then we're not going to see 15 to 20 percent returns, that they're going to come back downward because their coming their initial acquisition uh, entry points are just so much higher. It's just going to be higher for them to get the high rate of return. So I think those rates of returns are going to come down just as they went up when valuations were rising. But everything lags in the private equity world because the investment and the exit you know, or five to seven years apart. Yeah, yeah. There's always going to be that reversion to the mean, you know, and so I think there's a lot of overconfidence in the space. I see that quite a bit. And like you said, propped up by what others are doing. I mean, you got your typical mutual fund managers, you know, assumptions like, well, no one ever yelled at me for investing in Google, right? Like, you know, even if it's not a great investment or it doesn't turn out to be, your clients can't get mad at you for it. <laughs> so. Well, and that's what, that's what we're seeing, you know, all over the place now. And it's sort of, it's very dot-com reminiscent. Yes, uh, yes, it is. Uh, and, and, and never underestimate the shortage of memory that people have <laughs> when it comes to bubble investing. But, you know, right now within, the, within healthcare services, if somebody says that they have something remotely looking like technology and they add it onto their healthcare service platform, they're capturing enormous valuations. But what's interesting is they're capturing those valuations from West Coast investors i.e. Silicon Valley types. So we're looking at, you know, we just saw an autism provider, you know, get a, 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 an investment that put their valuation at, I don't recall the number, uh, Nick, but it's just, you know, outrageously high. And then I looked at who the investors are. And the investors are literally the, uh, the uh, Ashton Kutcher's of the world. And I'm not poking fun at Ashton Kutcher, but Ashton Kutcher is on the early side, VC side venture capital and, and they're 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 informed by what they've seen in technology. And they're looking at this as well, well it's a technology play. And I'm like, but is it really? You know, is technology like what you think it is? And I think that there's not been a, a lot of discipline that's being applied thinking about whether or not any technology within healthcare services is going to change the market in such a fundamental way that you could, you know, value a healthcare service company like, like a, a software company, uh, which is the kind of stuff that we are seeing. And so it's it it is, it is strange. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that as long as people are in there doing it, they're propping up values, and as long as values are propped up, people can get in and get out without, you know, getting hurt. It's when it's when the, uh, the, the the music stops and and you know you run out of chairs, um, and and that that's where the you know the the, the problem comes in. Yeah, you you got it exactly. I mean, you know, you just had that whole news on talk space, right? I mean, it came out at almost nine dollars a share in June, and now it's worth two twenty. I mean, it's almost seventy percent less. But people are saying, oh, it's a you know it's a telehealth platform. Telehealth can reach everybody. Like the thesis is terrible, <laughs> but they just assume because it's got some kind of massive potential reach that it's somehow a profitable business, which are two very different things. 
No, and and one of, and the thing that drives that, I think we we talked about this at a, at a program I think that you attended, is it, is it goes into a very a psychological uh, issue called optimism bias. It's a very real um, thing that happens where when people see something that's positive within a marketplace, they overestimate the positive attributes of that market until they actually see numbers coming in. And it takes a while for the numbers to actually come in. And so without those numbers coming in, there's almost an unlimited expectation of what something could possibly be. And that's optimism bias coming into play. And clearly within the anything that you put tele in front of, the optimism bias is, you know, is off the charts. Now, again, I, I want to be clear is I think that that market is fantastic. I think it's definitely going to grow. I think the fundamentals of it make incredible sense. I think we're definitely going to see a growth and expansion in the utilization of remote technologies in the providing of healthcare services across the board. Absolutely. The question is the, is the magnitude of that. And right now, I think the optimism bias is suggesting a magnitude that probably is not actually going to be there. Yeah, yeah that's exactly Which right. Which is why people yeah. don't capture you know, valuations on early stage investing that is just Right. And you see, you know, a couple of people, they get the IPO or they get the sale and they get out and may make a bunch of money, which is motivating to everyone else, even though that valuation is from a fundamental standpoint, maybe not accurate. As uh, I, I, I'm not one to quote JP Morgan very often, but uh, <laughs> one of my favorite quotes from him is uh, uh, he says, I've made lots of money getting out too early. Um, the idea being, you know, and some of these things, Get out. Yeah. <laughs> um, nothing, no one ever, no one ever lost money taking a profit. Is really what I'm, is what he was saying, and I think that there's a lot of wisdom to that. People hang on to things way too long, uh, but you know that's a that's a that's a, a separate right. Part. And so as you kind of were, you're talking about, there's there's a difference technically speaking between valuation and price. And so what something is paid or what people pay for something versus maybe what it's worth is not always the same. Oh, there's. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I've learned how the, the the gap between those two, you know, can be very large. And again, it doesn't mean that the buyer at the large valuation is not going to do well. Correct. But it's a continuation of the theme that underlying value and market value, um, we've kind of um, drifted uh, in terms of those fundamentals. And so going back to that multiples question then, so you mentioned, for example, there's an add-on multiple when you get a certain size. You know, why is that? Why, why are people willing to pay more for a bigger company? Yeah, the, the, the very basic thing about a bigger company is it, once you get big, a lot of the issues around risk begin to drop. So if you're big, it's not likely that you have, let's say, a concentration risk in a particular payer or a particular referral source or a particular, particular location or area because you're just big. Uh, and it's hard to generate a lot of revenue from a, a small, concentrated piece of business. So you've got diversification of risk there. If you're big, you you largely you almost assuredly have an operating and marketing and technology infrastructure that's able to support that business and to be able to keep it functioning in a um, appropriate manner uh, over a long period of time. Also, a big company is a more efficient transaction. So if I want to if I want to have a company or if I want to buy buy uh, 200 million worth of revenues with 30 million dollars worth of EBITDA, I'm willing to pay more for that if I can do it in one deal than if I have to do it in 10 deals. 
because there's a substantial amount of risk in integration when you're looking at 10 transactions and obviously operational risk and, and difficulty and all that kind of stuff. Um, if I'm able to do it in one transaction, I'm able to control a lot of variables that can take a, uh, a acquisition down and I can control them a lot better. So basically it's a function of, of reduced risk associated with large transactions. And in the, the economics evaluation, you know, you're, you're looking at three basic items that go into valuation, the amount of income, that's fairly obvious, the amount of growth, um, and big companies don't necessarily grow faster than smaller companies. In fact, they tend to grow slower because of the law of large numbers. But the other factor is risk, and the lower the risk, the higher the valuation. And it's within the risk continuum that large companies generally have lower risk than companies doing the exact same thing that are a tenth of the size. Sure. So what else about, you know, if I'm looking to sell, what else are buyers looking for and what else factors into my potential multiple there? I think, you know, uh, going back again to those basic fundamentals, when we look at a, when we look at a company and we're doing evaluation, and by the way, we also do kind of the same thing that we were talking about is we do do an underlying economic valuation based on risk return fundamentals. And we use that kind of as a benchmark to what we would consider to be, quote unquote, fair market value, i.e. a purchase price that's reasonable based on the risk return fundamentals. But then we also have another number for what we think it's going to sell for. And those numbers can be, as you can imagine, be, be very, very different. But the variables that we are looking at in terms of describing valuation is we rank our clients on about 14 or 15 different variables and all of them go to risk. So what we're looking at is, is, um, um, are there, is there any referral source concentration or business concentration? Is there an infra, an, a, 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 a management infrastructure that goes beyond the owner of the business so that the, if the owner leaves, the business continues to operate? Is there, is, is there an underlying sales infrastructure that can support long-term sustained growth or is the company just sort of growing by, by fits and starts because of some opportunistic situations that arose, but not something that they built into the operations that is constantly feeding uh, new business? We're looking at whether or not they have any regulatory exposure. That could be have nothing to do with the business itself. Could it be external regulatory exposure? A big area within addictions, particularly, is whether or not reimbursement is coming largely from in-network versus out-of-network services. The out-of-network reimbursement is considered to be far more risky than in-network reimbursement. I, I will point out, by the way, that's probably one of the biggest areas that PE companies have, and, and non-PE, have misjudged. For the longest time, and it's, it's less now than it was before, but it's still there, and that's that when buyers are evaluating companies that are largely out of net, they're valuing them, assuming to a large degree that the day they buy it, everything is going to become in network. And the thing that's interesting about that is they're making those assumptions like five or six, seven years ago when people started getting focused on the space and, and, uh, and uh, the, the recognition of the, the great differential between out of network and in network was kind of being codified. 
But if you look at those out-of-network providers today versus where they were five or six years ago, most of them are pretty much where they were. Um, there has, there, it's not that there hasn't been growth in in-network activity, there has, but not anywhere near the, the rate of, of change that buyers are, have been building into their internal models models which then make it so that they're not able to buy these companies because no seller is going to sell for those valuations that assume that the market premiums that they're receiving go away the next day. And one of the things I think that, that PE misses is that especially in uh, residential addiction programs where you're drawing a lot of your census from out of state, even though that model is getting less and less, the fact of the matter is, is that my patients are coming from out of state. What's the likelihood that there's going to be they're going to be an in-network provider with me? It's just very, very low. And so, this there's been an overreaction to the expectation of monumental, immediate contraction of rates from out-of-network to in-network. It's interesting. I didn't really thought about that before. And and really what we saw when we shift from our network to in network for the facilities that started to make that shift anyway was the volume in a lot of respects stayed more stable than I thought it would. And maybe that's because really people just stopped using their auto network benefits as much. They they're relying on the in network and the insurance reimbursement landscape has changed so much for the consumer, right? Where out of network could have made sense financially before, whereas really now it, it doesn't. And so, well, and, and also with with uh, parity laws, they had to, you know, they were kind of like stocks, like we have to pay these rates. I, but, but I think also the expectation is, you know, people are saying, well, it's going to go from a thousand dollars per day out of network to two hundred dollars a day in network, and I'm like, no, that's not happening. And we've seen. We've seen in-network rates that, and I don't want to quote them because I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure I'm seeing in-network rates that are definitely in the six and seven hundred dollars versus the two to three hundred dollars that people are modeling. That's true. I mean, unless you get down to Medicaid or some Blue Cross Blue Shield policies. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's and by the way, and then those are different kind of programs. I mean, we're we're not, you know, I'm actually talking more of the higher end programs. Um, where you can theoretically justify a high rate just because of the physical infrastructure. But hey, regardless of, of the actual numbers, the, the, the important thing to note is that there's been a disconnect in terms of what's actually happened versus the expectation of what's going to happen. I understand why people are concerned about it. I get it. But it's just that it, uh, it just hasn't, hasn't happened the way that people projected. The problem, though, from a buyer standpoint, and I, and I do empathize with buyers, is if, let's just say I just get a, I'm getting a ton of business from out of network from one particular insurance company. Well, it could happen, you know, that there could be some forced rate reduction. And all of a sudden, something that I paid, you know, X dollars for is worth a whole lot less than X. Regardless of that, an in-network provider that is successful and has a, a, a strong EBITDA is definitely substantially more valuable from a multiple standpoint than an out-of-network because those issues around, you know, largely go away. And so uh, there's no question that that's a um, that's an upside. One of the things that's surprising to us is 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 then why buyers a lot of buyers have not gravitated more towards Medicaid. Yeah. Um, because the rates are steady, um, but 
you know, it's it's a strange dichotomy. They go, yeah, but we like to hire, we like to hire reimbursement. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> okay, you can have high reimbursement and a lot of risk. You can have lower reimbursement and low risk. And if the people are going, yeah, but Medicaid's going to cut their reimbursement. I'm like, in behavioral healthcare, are they going to cut reimbursement? It's the last place they're cutting reimbursement these days. You know, if you're going to speculate on where cuts are going to be made, it's not there. Nobody knows where they're going. But you're not going to put it there. Well, I think a lot of people don't know how to lower that cost structure. I mean, we see that pretty consistently. We even at that conference we had, I can't remember which provider it was, but they're like, well, we can't get, you know, our $500 a day rate with Medicaid. Well, I mean, you can get your cost structure below $500 a day. You, if you know what you're doing. You can't make it on $500 yeah, a day. Yeah, right. You know, there's probably, a, there's probably a problem. Correct. Exactly. Right. You know, I'm not, I'm not an operator, but we should be able to make that work. Right. I mean, you might have to reduce services, but. In some states, we, we, we have Medicaid providers in our book of business that are generating 20, 25% EBITDA. You know, it's not like just because it's Medicaid, these companies are making, you know, 5%. We, we don't see that at all. Even the companies that are not getting the really premium rates on for Medicaid are making a solid 12 to 15% EBITDA, which in healthcare services is kind of de rigueur. You know, that's a good margin. That's a strong and a sustainable margin. So, you know, it's it's interesting how uh, buyers look at the marketplace. It's not quite as logical as you would have as 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 you would think about, you know, if you were coming from the outside, you know, and, and looking at it from a math. Perspective. Yeah, 100% agree. And to your point, sometimes you're running a, a different math, you know, using a little bit of different inputs and a thesis, depending on if you are trying to build for the long term versus sell to private equity versus, you know, sell to a long term buyer like KKR or something. You know, it's very, very different. Oh, yeah. And that makes the time horizon makes a huge difference. Right. I mean, it makes a huge difference. It, it goes to things that you're willing to do now that you wouldn't be willing to do later on. Um, and as I said, even what they buy, changes dramatically. Uh, what we typically see is, um, you know, a, a lot of investment early on, then you see kind of a slowdown as you start to integrate, and maybe where you can, not always, but where you can switch to de novos. And what's interesting is towards the end of the investment cycle, you tend to see a flurry of deals. And, and that's when the seller has kind of an idea of what their exit multiple is going to be. And if they see that they can make an arbitrage in terms of between their exit multiple and their entry multiple, they'll make a bunch of acquisitions. So if I've identified for myself, hey, I can get out of 15X and I can find a bunch of companies I can buy at 12, even though the 12 is still a premium, I've got that 3X arbitrage that I can get if I just do those acquisitions within the last year prior to exit. And so we see a bunch of that activity. So even where a buyer is within their consolidation cycle, can change what they're going to buy, why they're going to buy it, and how much they're going to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, so fascinating. None of which has anything to do with with the underlying <laughs> fundamentals of what right, the business is. Right, right. Yeah, depends on what you're trying to do, I guess. Uh, it's so interesting. Well, Dex, I really appreciate all the information. Fascinating conversation. If people want to reach out to you or talk to your firm, you know, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, the best way to find us is just go onto our website, and it's really simple. It's thebraffgroup.com. Uh, that's B-R-A-F-F group.com. And all of our information is in there. There's also lots of data that um, uh, you can go. If you look at any of our sector pages, we put all of our, some of the data that I was quoting to you uh, on this call is is shown in graphic graphical format. 
uh, in that on the website. And then the contact information for our people within the various sectors that we cover are all there. And so rather than give a bunch of phone numbers, just hit the website and you'll find everything and, and more. And then you'll be at TCIV and you're going out to JPM in January as well. And what about NATAP? Yes, we'll be at TCIV, um, uh, which is the Treatment Center's Investors and Valuation Conference. I believe that's the 10th, 11th, and 12th. Um, in December, we'll be at JP Morgan. Uh, and in fact, uh, we will be hosting a meet and greet. And let me just, I actually have my little invitation here. Hold on one second. Anyone that is attending uh, the uh, JPN uh, conference, you don't need to have an invitation with you to attend. Uh, we're holding uh, meet and greets at uh, Morton's downtown. It's uh, right right off of um, off of the Market Square on 400 Post Street. It's at Morton's, and it's going to be on July 11th and 12th between 2 and 4:30 p.m. And all you need to do is uh, show up with your smiling face. Um, we're happy to uh, say hi and you know and uh, get to know people. Well, I really appreciate all the information. Um, hope you're able to make some good contacts at those conferences. They're always great ones to be at. Uh, for all our listeners out there, this is uh, Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social, and we'll see you guys next time.